We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 3, which I'll be reading to you in just a minute. Vincent van Gogh uh, is perhaps one of the world's greatest painters, one of the greatest artists of all time. In America, we call him Vincent van Gogh. To the English, he is Vincent van Gogh. And to the Dutch, he is Vincent van Gogh. But I'm going to stick with the American version for the sake of those of you in the front row who don't need those rough CH sounds. But Vincent van Gogh was a man who was acquainted with suffering. Uh, he was uh, born into an upper middle class family. We have a, a picture. Can we get that first slide? Um, this is uh, Vincent van Gogh when he was young. He was born into a very prosperous family and he became known as an eccentric. Uh, and as you read through his extensive letters, which were written to his closest confidant and benefactor, his brother Theo, uh, one sees a complex figure with a complex relationship to the world, to those around him, to himself, and a complex relationship with God. He was actually the son of a pastor, of a liberal Protestant pastor, and Van Gogh later uh, 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 described his youth as being, in his words, austere and cold and sterile. Eventually, Vincent drifted in a more evangelical direction himself. Yeah, we're going to have to cut these lights because it's going to be, somebody's going to have a seizure. Um, (laughs) It's just the front ones that are doing that. I'm okay in the shade. But uh, he described his upbringing as very sterile, emotionally distant. Uh, Eventually, Vincent drifted into this more evangelical Protestant direction, and he actually became a missionary working among miners in uh, the south of Belgium in a very impoverished community where he was their pastor. And yet Vincent van Gogh saw the wealth and he saw a lot of hypocrisy in the Dutch church of his day. Christians would wear extravagant clothing and jewelry while the people that Vincent was serving would struggle to live. They would struggle in positions of extreme poverty and constant risk and danger. And yet the Dutch church leaders reprimanded Vincent time and time again. Vincent, on, at one point, he was given this very nice apartment to live in. And witnessing the poverty of those he served, he gave over his own apartment provided by the church to a family that was homeless. And he himself lived in a tent in the woods. He would dress as his fellow people dressed in the, the, the clothing of poor miners in order to represent Jesus to them. And And he would get one rebuke after another from the Dutch church. They reprimanded him because his clothes were unbecoming of a man of the cloth. They would reprimand him for living in a a debased and shameful living condition, squalid and impoverished. Finally, Vincent van Gogh, the missionary, was dismissed from service by the church for undermining the dignity of the priesthood. And so Vincent depleted his savings in order to continue serving his people. And once he was completely broke, he was forced to leave these people and leave this mining community he loved and to work instead for his brother Theo, who owned an art gallery. Vincent would live in poverty the rest of his life. He never made money from his paintings and his soul. Vincent van Gogh became disillusioned with the institutional church 
in his paintings, he would paint churches and, and the land around them would be bathed in light and brilliance, but the church itself would always be dark, uh, a foreboding quality, no light within it, almost completely devoid of the love of God. We have a picture of that. If you could get that next slide. Um, next one. You see, the church was the one place where he did not see light or life. Van Gogh felt rejected by the church with its love of wealth and social status. Van Gogh also struggled deeply with mental illness. He suffered from psychotic episodes. He suffered from delusions. And though he worried about his mental stability, he often neglected his physical health as well. He didn't eat right. He drank very heavily. On one evening, after an altercation with his friend Gauguin, Vincent found himself assaulted by voices within, and so he severed off part of his own ear, then walked it down the street to a brothel he had frequented in the past and gave it to the ladies there. He spent time in psychiatric hospitals, including a period at St. Remy. Some have suggested schizophrenia. We have his self-portrait here. Next slide. We really can't know his diagnosis. What we can know for certain is that Vincent van Gogh dealt with a condition that was very similar to epilepsy for much of his life. It affected him physically and mentally. At times he would have seizures and wake up not knowing where he had been or what he had done. He went through periods of very dark and very deep depression. Van Gogh's condition may have been worsened by his habit of sucking on his paintbrushes while working. The oil paints Van Gogh used were based in lead, and this habit may eventually have caused some level of brain damage, contributing to drifts into mental delusion in which Van Gogh experienced in his later years. But in the eyes of the world, Vincent was a madman, he was a drunk, and he was a failure. In the eyes of his church, he was an embarrassment. Presumably in one of his fits of depression and dissolution, Van Gogh shot himself in the abdomen at the age of 37. The suicide attempt was initially unsuccessful. Van Gogh stumbled back to the house where he was staying. He remained lucid for days and conversant in the aftermath. But several days later, Vincent Van Gogh passed away from blood loss and from infection in the arms of his brother, Theo. Can you imagine such heartache? Can you imagine the loneliness of mental illness? Can you imagine the sorrow and the pain of rejection, of being misunderstood, of being despised, of being looked down upon, of being rejected by anyone and everyone? Can you imagine the tears? We inhabit a world of tears, of suffering, overflowing with pain. We're going to look at Acts chapter 3 and ask how God speaks into that world of tears. I'm going to read Acts 3 verses 1 to 21 if you want to follow along with me. This is the word of God. One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. And now a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. And when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. And Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. 
So the man gave them some attention, expecting to get something from them. And then Peter said, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. And he jumped to his feet and he began to walk. And then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. And when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging in the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And while the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and they came running to them at the place called Solomon's Colonnade. That's on the side of the temple court. And when Peter saw this, he said to them, Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified His servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate. Though he had decided to let him go, you disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses to this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through Him that has given this complete healing to Him, as you can all see. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what He had foretold through all the prophets, saying that His Christ would suffer. Repent then, and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that He may send the Christ who who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as He promised long ago through the holy prophets. This is God's Word. What do we see here? We see in this man, this beggar, A life of incredible pain. We see suffering that we all know intimately. The tears that are close to all of us. We know the sorrow, the shame, the pain, the loss, the decline. Ultimately, we have all faced or experienced in someone we love, death. And here we see this disabled man. He couldn't walk. He was so disabled he had to be carried every day to a place in the temple courts where he could beg for money. And even in that day, people were more generous to give a dollar if they were on their way to church. And so he had a prime location right on the way to temple where people would give to him money to absolve their own guilty conscience. He was desperately poor. What's it like for us? You think of the family you grew up in. You think of the pain, the people who hurt you, the way that scars are still there because of what you experienced growing up. You think of the things that happened on the playground. You think of the wounds that have been inflicted, the tears that have been shed, 
the relationships that didn't work out, the people that betrayed you and stabbed you in the back, the people who should have loved you, who did not love you as they ought. You think of the humiliations and the shame and the fears, the people that you've lost, all of that pain, and you see the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And that's what we see right here in this life of this man, a microcosm of everything that can be taken from a human being, stripped of his dignity and left, carried around like a mat and left on the street to beg for alms from people who were just using him to clean their own conscience. And you see all of this and it leaves us wondering, God, where are you? Are you there, God? Do you actually even exist or is this all just a fairy tale? Are we really alone? Is there no meaning to life a billion years from now when all the stars will have gone out? Will there be no one to even know that we existed? Will we have had any significance at all? If God isn't there, are we, are we meaningless? Are you there, God? It leaves us asking that question. And God, if you are there, it leaves us asking another question. It asks, leaves us asking, God, do you, do you care? When you look upon the pain, how can you be a holy, good, and loving God and look upon all of the pain of all of the cosmos crying out for relief? Are you really good like we've always been told? If you're there, how can you stand all of the cruelty that humanity does to one another? All of the grief and the tears and the famines and the wars and the cries of lonely souls and the cries of the oppressed. God, do you care? And we don't always have easy answers to these questions. But it also leaves us with no better option. Because if you conclude that God isn't there, then you conclude that there is no meaning and there is no way the world ought to be because there's no one who made it a way that it ought to be. If you say He's not there, then you have no basis from which to even cry out and say, this is not just because your justice as a concept has no meaning ultimately. Injustice is just the way things are. Pain is just the way things are. Suffering is just the way things are. You say, but, but with suffering and death, humanity can't thrive. But why do you think humanity ought to thrive if there's no God who made humanity in His image in order to make us to thrive? You see, if you get rid of God, you've got a much bigger problem because you've still got all of the same suffering and grief, but you've got no foundation in which to say that it is evil and that it ought not to be. Only in the Bible... Of historical Christianity, do I see the door opened for a world that ought to have been a certain way and that is not now that way? That biblical narrative of creation and fall, that the world was created good and yet when humanity turned its back on God, the whole world was damaged and broken and ruptured and suffering and death came in physically, emotionally, spiritually, in every way. But either way, we can't escape the pain of this life. Yet what else do we see here? As we see Peter and John with this man in the temple of God, with all of his pain and all of his suffering, crying out for relief, what we see is not merely the pain of this world and its tears. What we also see is Jesus reach out and touch this man and heal him through his apostle. It is Jesus' name, Peter says, that has given this complete healing. Jesus, yes, he used an apostle. Peter 
stretched out his hand. Peter healed him. But Peter said, it's in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth that I command you to walk. Healing was one of those marks of an apostle. Uh, It's a gift in the New Testament that is called a sign of an apostle, of one who who was one of the twelve, who had that authority to write scripture. These, These men had the ability to heal. Yes, God does still heal today. Uh, I've I've seen it. I know it happens. But it doesn't happen on command the way it happened here. That's a mark of an apostle. The ability to command someone in the name of Jesus Christ, walk and have them walk. Not as something where you're crying out to God and hoping that he heals, but where it is on command. Because it is Jesus that is doing this through his apostle. Peter says as much. It is in the name of Jesus that this has been done. And Jesus is always identified with those who suffer. You think of who Jesus identified with in the Gospels. Who was he a friend of? He was a friend of sinners. Who is he criticized for hanging out with? Tax collectors, prostitutes, uh, sinners like us. He was known to have great compassion on those who were sick, on those who suffered. When a woman who had been bleeding for years reached out and touched him for healing, he didn't rebuke her, but he told her her faith has healed her because her faith was in him. This has always been our God who identifies with lepers and widows and the sick and the the despised. It's it's what we see in the Old Testament in the passage that Rena read from earlier in, in Psalm 146, how God identifies himself. You know, you know, when people ask me who I am, I say Well, my name's Greg Johnson, and I'm from St. Louis. I've been here 20-some years, and I'm one of the pastors at Memorial Presbyterian Church. And the reason I I describe myself that way is that that's what I spend most of my waking hours doing. That's the public identity. It's how I mainly identify myself. And you ask, how does God identify himself in the Old Testament? He says, well, I am the God who sets prisoners free. I am the one who gives sight to the blind. I am the one who lifts up those who are bowed down. I am the one who watches over the immigrant. I am the one who sustains the orphan. I am the one who sustains and defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. That is who I am. And Jesus, as God in the flesh, comes to us. And he is the very same Savior God who identifies with the weak, with the suffering, with the crippled with the despised, with the outcast. And here we see the heart of Jesus. Here we see the heart of God reaching out through the Apostle to heal this man and his tears and cries and suffering. We see a man healed, recognizing how this happened. What did he do? But he praised God. And the people were filled with wonder and amazement. And they praised God. And a crowd formed. This was a a public miracle performed by a Jewish man, Peter, in the purported Jewish, in the name of the purported Jewish Messiah, Jesus or Yeshua, performing them in the very heart of the Jewish nation, the temple of the Lord. Jesus did this. We see Jesus healing this man. We see the heart of our Savior. Now you object and you say, Greg, the problem with that is that Jesus doesn't do that for everyone else. He did it there, but he doesn't do it for everyone else. So why not? What's going on here? What's going on here is Jesus is addressing 
not the symptom, but the underlying problem, the underlying issue. It's why physicians don't typically treat pain first. If you go to your doctor and you say, you know, I've got this huge pain in the front right corner of my skull and it feels like it's pressing on the back of my eye and it's been getting worse for about a year now and now my right vision's getting blurry and he then gives you a pain patch and some eye drops and says this should make you feel better. What's the problem? He's just masked to the symptoms. He has not investigated the underlying issue. If he just masks the symptoms and heals the pain and you've got a tumor growing in the back of your eyeball, in your brain, and he doesn't deal with that, then by the time he finally deals with it, it will have grown and metastasized all over your body and you will be gone. Jesus is not here, first and foremost, to address the symptoms without first addressing the underlying disease, which is our alienation from God. What Jesus is saying when he heals this man is he's saying, see, I have the power to bring life because I have the power to deal with the underlying issue that's behind all of this world of suffering, not just our suffering, but the suffering of the cosmos, which is crying out to God for the sons of God to be revealed. It's awaiting in anticipation for its release because it was subjected to pain because of us. It was under our dominion. And we turned from God, the whole world was broken. And Jesus is saying, I have the power to heal, but I'm here to deal with not just the symptom of the pain and the suffering and the loss and the sorrows, but the underlying issue to reconcile you with God. You see the pain, you see the tears, you wonder, what do I do with that? Because when you see pain and you see suffering, you should rightly be angry Because Jesus, when he saw the suffering and he saw the pain, he was angered by it because it ought not to be that way. It was not meant to be that way in the beginning. And his heart cries out. And so what do you do with the anger? I'm going to give you some boxes. Um, On the one hand, you can direct your anger at God. He is sovereign after all. But if you do that, what you're going to do is exacerbate that underlying issue, which is our alienation from God. And you're not actually going to bring healing and life into the underlying psychosis, if you will. You can instead get mad at yourself and direct the anger inwardly. But what that's going to do is spiral you downward out of control and leave you in utter despair and hopelessness. So you can direct the anger instead at other people, at the people who have hurt you in this life. But again, that's not really addressing the underlying issue because the reason they hurt you, the reason they're sinners is because of that broken relationship between humanity and God. So you can say, okay, well, I'll just get mad at the world because it's broken and not the way it ought to be. And yet that also is not going to deal with the underlying issue and it will leave you increasingly bitter and isolated. So what do you do with the anger? But direct it at the broken relationship with God. Direct it at the underlying disease that is causing all of our suffering and all of our pain and all of our tears and all of our death. And once you direct it at the underlying 
distance between us and God, then you open a door of hope for the gospel because the gospel can then come into play to reconcile us to God, to bridge that gulf and to give us hope, not just in this life to see some level of comfort and forgiveness and peace with God, but beyond this life to actually have a resurrected body in a new world, a new earth renewed and transformed by the grace of God. That's what Jesus is focusing on here. On the pathology, he says, in order that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. So Jesus did this at what cost? You see it in verse 13, 14, 15, that the Holy One, that is Jesus, who is described as the author of life, the title of deity, the one who created the cosmos, that the author of life, the Holy One, the Divine One, was killed and disowned and murdered and subject to all of that same suffering himself in order to release us to be reconciled to God. You know, when you're when you're when you're crying out in pain and you're feeling all of that weight, friends, the Bible doesn't always tell us why we're going through the pain and the loss and the fear that we're going through right now in this life. It doesn't tell us. And it doesn't always give us an answer. It gives us partial answers. It wasn't meant to be this way. It wasn't this way in the beginning. The world's not what it was meant to be. And yet, specifically, why me? Why now? Why this, God? Why take this from me? It doesn't answer. And yet, in our minds and our hearts, we often go to one answer that is readily available, which is the reason all this is happening to me is God must hate me. God must not love me. And when you look at the cross of Jesus and you see the author of life not coming at you with a two-by-four, but nailed to a two-by-four, you see him submitting to suffering for your sake bleeding for your sake and ultimately absorbing all of the wrath and anger due our sin, due my sin and yours, and you see him doing that for you, then that can rule out that one answer because there you see the face of God and there you see a face of absolute self-sacrificial, compassionate love for his enemies that they might become his friends. Peter is saying, This is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that the Christ would suffer. And so he says, turn to God and your sins will be wiped out fully, finally and forever. And he promises that times of refreshing will come. Jesus, who weeps with the brokenhearted, the God of the poor, in solidarity with our tears on the cross, reconciling us to God, and yet also pointing us to a larger hope a larger work of Jesus that remains in the future because this healing, like every healing of Jesus, is pointing us beyond this life to Christ's return, to his second coming. It's what Peter spells out in the text we read. Peter says, In order that God may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus, he says, Jesus has to remain in heaven until the time comes For God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Did you hear that? He's saying Jesus is going to come again. And he's going to come again specifically to do something the prophets foretold. The restoration of everything. 
This is what the prophets longed for when they spoke of shalom, when they spoke of of the peace of God, that universal flourishing, that webbing together of, of God and humanity and the physical creation in a unity of love and justice and goodness. What the prophets spoke of when they said that a day would come under Messiah's rule when the mountains will be so covered with fruit that rivers of wine will flood down to flood the valleys below, when children will frolic and play in the streets without any fear, when cities will no longer have walls, when when armies will have beaten their swords into plowshares. That's what Messiah is going to do. Jesus, in his first coming, dealt with the underlying issue to reconcile us to God. And he's saying with the prophets that a day will come when he returns and everything is going to be restored, just as God had promised to Abraham when he said that all the nations are going to be blessed through you. Just as as Paul would say in Romans 8 when he he talks about how the, the whole creation is waiting in eager expectation for that day when we're all revealed as redeemed because then the physical world will be liberated, he says, from its bondage to decay. God's not going to destroy the world. He's going to liberate it. When Jesus said the meek will inherit the earth, he wasn't promising you a burnt cinder. He was promising you universal flourishing. When everything is alive again, when everything is renewed and back to the way it was meant to be. In the book of Revelation, it is said that in that day, heaven will come to earth. Everything will be transformed. There will be trees with 12 crops, one every month. And those trees, the leaves of the trees, will be for the healing of the nations. Friends, that's our hope. Not to escape pain or escape suffering, but that our suffering might be brief and that the day might come when even our tears are redeemed. When everything's made new. C.S. Lewis says it this way in The Great Divorce, chapter 9. Some mortals say of some temporal suffering that no future bliss can make up for it not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even the agony into a glory. It's what we see when Sam Gamgee speaks to Gandalf at the end of the Lord of the Rings. Both of them have died, and Sam wakes up and he sees Gandalf there, and he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then, I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? And Gandalf replies saying, A great shadow has departed. And then he laughed and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as he listened and thought, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment for days upon days without count. Every healing of Jesus is making the same point, that a day is going to come when everything is going to be healed, when everything will be restored, when everything will be made new. Vincent Van Gogh was a man acquainted with sorrow. He was rejected by a church that was focused on status, on wealth, and on social standing. He was tormented by manic delusions In psychotic episodes, he was wounded in one relationship after another. He was despised, he was hated. In the eyes of his family, friends, and society, Vincent van Gogh was a failure. 
But as he pulled away from the institutional church and his, his theology, frankly, became kind of weird, a little bit mystical, kind of evangelical, kind of Roman Catholic, even when he was making his worst decisions, suffering from his worst losses while he was nursing a hangover or nursing an STD, even while tied up in an insane asylum, even in the midst of his seizures and his deepest depression, Vincent never let go of one thing. As you read his letters to Theo, he never let go of Jesus. He knew there was evil, that that evil was inside of him. He said, I know I am defective. He knew he needed a redeemer. And he knew his only hope lay outside of himself. Vincent van Gogh wrote these words before his death. He said, there is much evil in the world and in ourselves. Terrible things. And one doesn't need to be far advanced in life to be in fear of much and to feel the need of a firm faith in life hereafter and to know that without faith in God, one cannot live, one cannot bear it. But with that faith, one can go on for quite a long time. When Vincent's life took on hope, and there were periods of hope between the periods of depression, his artwork tended to reflect what is called the yellow phase of Van Gogh's paintings. Yellow evoked for Vincent, as you read his letters, it evoked hope, it evoked goodness, it evoked love, and ultimately it evoked the love of God. The love of God for Vincent Van Gogh had a shade, and that shade was yellow. You look at his starry night. Could we get that next slide? Um, You all have seen his starry night. You see in the midst of all of the darkness of this world and all the swirling darkness of his life, the darkness of that church that has no yellow within it because it is the one place you will not find the love of God in Vincent's experience. Yet nevertheless, in the heavens you see the love of God shining through in his creation. You see the love and the glory and the goodness and the hope of God shining through in the cosmos. And as you get later in his life, And you see the raising of Lazarus. Let's go to the next one. You see in the raising of Lazarus, this account of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus, his friend who had passed away. And you see Jesus. And Jesus is ablaze in yellow. And the yellow is shining out from Jesus. The love of God and the hope and the goodness of God is shining out, if not from his church, at least from Jesus and a person who is really there, who is alive and at large and able to show compassion. And you see that light shining onto this man. Could we get that close-up, the next slide? If you recognize the close-up, of Lazarus, Vincent van Gogh has painted his own face on the face of Lazarus. As Vincent is saying, I am seeing Jesus in my own sin, in my failure, in my sickness, in my disease. I cannot fix myself. I cannot heal myself. I cannot restore myself. But I have Jesus, and he is light, and he is hope, and he is life, and he is shining his light upon me as the only hope that I have in this life And for the next, the love of God for us, sinners, the compassion and the blazing goodness of God. Van Gogh Gogh reflected on the state of evil and of sorrow when he wrote these words. 
He said, sorrow is better than joy. And even in mirth, the heart is sad. And it is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasts. For by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. Our nature is sorrowful. But for those who have learned and are learning to look at Jesus Christ, there is always reason to rejoice. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks. And we praise you and honor you and ask that you would restore us, Lord. Grant us your grace, your healing power, we pray. In the name of Jesus.